my name is Chuck. I'm alcoholic. Hmm. It's been a long day. A long day. I want to thank my friend Colin for being the, uh, the carpool dummy. And my friend Steve for driving along. Uh, thank you very much for coming along. We, we, uh, we left about four hours ago, so it's been a wild ride. Uh, you, I, I try to act spiritual, but he'd know I'm full of it. <laughs> it was a heck of a ride. Uh, I'm glad to be to me of Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to thank uh, Joseph for the invite, even though he's not here, which is a telltale sign. It, you always get concerned when the guy who invited the speaker doesn't show. It's like, it's scary. Uh, (laughs) Like I needed not to show up for that guy. Um, Welcome home if you're new. Welcome home to AA if you're new. Um, I walked in late and I really hate doing that because I miss a lot of the temperature of the meeting and what's really going on. I heard a little bit of your talk. Really enjoyed the end of that. But just out of curiosity, can I see the hands of the people here in the first year? Right. Terrific. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. 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 Yeah. Let's give them a hand. I'm really glad you're here, and now I know why I'm here. Because I, I mean, I, um, I don't. I'm not a speaker. I'm not. Uh, uh, I'm not a public speaker. I'm not. Uh, AA doesn't really have speakers per se. I'm. I'm, uh, I'm a puking drunk, is what I am. And uh, um, and I've been asked to share my experience with and hope, so I'm going to try to do that tonight with you guys. Um, and I'm really uncomfortable doing this. I, I, I don't like doing it. Or really, it's probably my least favorite thing to do in Alcoholics Anonymous. It just. I find it very, very, I, 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 I don't find it connecting. It seems to separate or something. I just have a tough time with it. I don't do it very often. I stopped doing it a while back. But when Joseph called me, I thought, what the heck, let me, let me try it again and see, see what's up. So that's the deal. Um, uh, if you're new, I, I really want to welcome you here. Uh, if you're new and you're having a really hard time staying sober, I really want to welcome you here. If you're new and you keep coming back here new, I really, really want to welcome you here. If you're here and you are under the influence right now, I am delighted that you're here. And I want you to know that you belong and you're in the right place. You're in the right place. Don't let anybody tell you anything different. And that's my experience. I was the... I was a newcomer for a really, really long time. I remember one time I was talking to a guy, and we were talking to some guy, and we were, I said, hey, John, I remember when you came in. And But this guy goes, I remember when you came in, and came in, and came in, and came in. I was like the designated newcomer of the group, you know what I mean? And I'm a smart mouth, too. I'm a real smart, I'm a, I just, I don't, you could, t- alcoholism could kick, kick the living daylights out of me, take everything out of my pride, my ego. It could just, any kind of self-respect I have for, for myself or anything. And the first thing I get back is my opinion and attitude. <laughs> it's like it's like you come up to me and go how much time you got and i go i got all day what do you need man because <laughs> i can't get any time i'm just i'm one of them guys i'm just so if you're like that um please please keep coming back because uh, that's what i did and that's what my friend colin did and that's what a lot of guys i sponsor have done we're the knuckleheads we're the ones nobody wants we're the ones people make fun of we're the ones that people walk up and say really crude things to. But I got nowhere else to go. I got nowhere else to go. And I'm dying of alcoholism and I know it. So I keep coming back. And hopefully you meet a guy like I met. Uh, a man of service. Uh, I want to thank you guys for pressing the H&I can and talking about hospitals and institutions. If you're new and you don't know what that means, it's H&I. We go into prisons and jails and we share the message. We talk about recovery with people who can't go to meetings. 
and I'm a product of H&I. I'm a product of H&I. Who's doing H&I, hands? Oh, my God, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming out on that night when, like, your favorite ball game was on and you didn't want to leave the house or for when you worked overtime and you were really, really tired that night or you had your kids and you wanted to stay home with the kids that night but you made a commitment to go talk to those people that didn't want to hear you because I heard you. I heard you. I was one, and I was 5150 in a metal ward one more time. Anybody else been 5150? I thought you were here. <laughs> and, and a guy came in and talked, and something happened. I'll talk about that in a few minutes. You know, I'm, I'm really grateful for those commitments and service and people that taught me that really the line in AA that uh, you have to give it away to keep it is such a lie. If you're me, if you're me, I have to give it away to get it. That's what happened for me. I know it says you can't transmit what you haven't got, but I've seen some weird stuff happen here, and it's been my experience, and I'm not telling stories. I just, I've seen it happen. So, um, you know, if you're new, God, I'm so, so grateful you're here. Because I have alcoholism. I don't know if you have alcoholism either, uh, whether you do or not. But I know when I got here, I didn't know whether I had alcoholism. I had no clue. How would I? And in our book, The Alcoholics Anonymous, there's a line on page 44 in the chapter called We Agnostics. And in the chapter, Wilson asks a couple of questions. And here they are, if you're wondering whether you are or whether you're not. If when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit drinking entirely. What's that mean? I'll tell you what it means for me. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I just got out of jail. I'm not going to do it. She just left. I'm not going to do it. I'm not. I'm on probation. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And I wind up doing it anyway. Anybody else? Or if when drinking, I have little control over the amount I take. I'm only going to stop by the bar and have a couple of beers with the guys and go home and mow the yard. Right? Whole paycheck later. Right? So what he's done is he's encapsulated... The obsession and the phenomenon of craving that once I start, I can't stop. But that obsession that compels me to go back over and over. I had no idea about any of that. I had no clue at all. How would I know that? I don't know. But I have alcoholism. I have alcoholism. I don't know where I got alcoholism. I don't know how I got alcoholism except I drank. I go to discussion meetings. Um, I, my friend calls them Oprah Winfrey meetings. Or you just tell your problems and throw a dollar, you know. And I mean, if they're centered on literature, it's always good. But if it's just I'm having a good day, having a bad day, okay. Um, but uh, you go and I hear people talk about where they got alcoholism, how they got it. My dad had it. My brother had it, which is all fine. I don't know whether or not about predispositions. I don't know anything about that. But the question I was asked when I was new to Alcoholics Anonymous, when I came in for the first time trying to get sober, was in 1991. And these old timers grabbed me at the coffee bar and this guy said, are you alcoholic? And I said, yes, I am. He said, do you want to live or do you want to die? That was the interview that I got. <laughs> I thought the guy was being a little dramatic, you know what I mean? But he wasn't, if you're new. If you're new and you feel like you're dying, it's because you are. If you be a real alcoholic. And I, uh, I had no clue. I don't know where I got alcoholism. But I can tell you for me, I've always been a little bit weird. Anybody else weird? <laughs> the rest of you liars. I've always been very busy. I'm a thinker. I'm a thinker, right? Think? I'm a, I'm a problem solver is what I really am. 
I solve problems that will never occur, but I work on the problem. I'm like a, I'm like a tweaker working on his acne, you know, that ain't good, that ain't good. I better watch it, I'm near Marietta, right? I'm restless, irritable, and discontented, as long as I can remember. As a kid, as a little kid, restless, irritable, and discontent. I'm the oldest of three. I have two sisters. I came from, uh, 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 I was raised up in Central California in a farming community. My mom and dad were hardworking, very, very poor, poor people. Not, ni- not 2015 standard. I'm talking 1950s poor. A uh, whole different ballgame. And, uh, um, and my mom and dad, uh, my dad went to the military and he educated himself. My mom went to school and became a, uh, worked for the school system. And every opportunity that they didn't have, I got. Every, every chance to be something and do something, they gave me. But if you're like me, it's never enough. If you're like me, you don't love me enough, you ain't giving me enough. I got this gnawing in my gut, the restlessness of the alcoholic, the unsettled stomach, the conscious separation from that thing in me that just, I can't find my spot, I don't fit with the right crowd, I'm easily agitated, and nothing's ever enough. I don't care what it is, once I get it, it's wrong. It's wrong. There's something better, something shinier. And I grew up like that in this little town. I'm the oldest of three. I'm, uh, I'm not a smart kid. I'm not a, uh, uh, I'm not a, a soci kid. Uh, I'm not, a, I don't like sports. I don't get sports at all. I'm not a jock. I, I'm none of that at all. I don't even, I still don't like sports. I can't stand them. They bought, I don't know why anybody does them. I just, uh, you know. But I tell you what, if you're like that, if you're not really soci, you're not a jock, you don't, what happens is you find an elite crowd at school called stoners. <laughs> and those are the cats that I hung out with, man. I mean, smoking cigarettes when we were kids and stealing candy. And, and I, uh, before I ever got loaded on anything, I acted loaded because uh, it was cool. And, uh, and uh, at the age of like 13 years old, I remember, uh, like, I, I don't know, I just don't fit in very well. I don't, I don't mix well with others, and uh, I, I'm, I'm full of fear and don't even know it, just full of fear. I, I watch you interact with the world and wonder what I missed. And, and uh, at the age of 13 years old, I remember being at high, junior high school dances and just being terrified to do anything, to ask girls to dance and, and hating myself for it. And knowing in the pit of my gut that I'm a coward. And I don't like that. And I was at a wedding when I was 13 years old in a room about this size, a little bigger in an AMVAT hall. And uh, there was a wedding going on and there were people from my, my school that were there and there was a live band there and there was booze. And I had never had a drink yet. And uh, I saw some red wine on the table. I saw some cold duck at this fine event. Cold duck, you know, that's not good stuff. There was, yeah, there was no Dom Perignon there, I'll tell you that. And I, uh, I uh, took some of that stuff and took a couple sips. And, you know, and my reference is this. I don't have alcoholic parents. I don't have that experience of, you know, the alcoholism in my home. I have uncles that drink a lot. I saw what happened to them when they drank. And my experience is that whenever they drank, they became alive. They became friendly. And I know that booze is going to do something. So what I started doing was I, I took a couple of drags off that cold gin and so that, that uh, cold duck and some red wine. And I didn't like the flavor. 
but I got a couple glasses in me and then something happened to me. And if you're an alcoholic of my type, you know exactly what it is I'm talking about. It was like one minute I feel like this total geek. I don't fit in. I got the wrong skin color. And as the rock all hit my blood system and I let out a full body sigh, my, my shoulders kind of dropped and I just went, ah, oh, this is going to be good. And I didn't say that. I felt it like, you know, this is going to be good. And I tell you something, if you're like me and you're trapped in your head and never comfortable and nothing's ever right and you can take a deep breath and say, this is going to be good and mean it, I'm telling you, if you're like me, I will sell my soul for one more. I don't know that then, but I, looking back now, I can see it. And I, uh, I, it, it, was a, it, was an, it was a complete awakening for me to feel like that, to get... To just get the edge off for a few minutes and just get the sense of ease and comfort. You know, because what happens for me is early on I get drink and I feel better then, whatever. And then after a while I get to a point where I just don't care. And I like just don't care. I like 40 ounces to freedom. <laughs> I love it. And I, uh, I, uh, I, uh, I, I got real drunk that night, got really, really sick. I could not wait to do it again. And, and, you know, if you're that age, it's hard to get booze. But I got booze every chance I could. And at the age of 15 and a half, I got arrested for the first time. Not the first time arrested, but the first time for an alcohol offense, uh, being under the influence and possession of. And I ended up in a courtroom, and um, I was sentenced to AA at 15 and a half. I have no idea what AA is. I have no clue what AA is. And I go to my first AA meeting, and it's weird. Uh, I sit down in a room with like eight farmers. Um, I thought they were reading the Bible because it was God, 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 God. You know, uh, where's the basket? And then it came, you know I mean? Like, <laughs> you know. I looked around the room, and I just thought, this is like, this is, looks like a hayride for inbreds. This is what it looks like. You know what I mean? Like hook a rug, you know what I mean? Uh, but I judge no man. Because <laughs> I'm too spiritually developed. <laughs> and I sit down and, and, and this woman tells this blow by blow story. And long story short, she was paroled and um, she'd committed a, a felony and went to prison for, for drowning her two-year-old kid in the bathtub on accident in a blackout and immediately newcomer immediately my mind started talking i don't know about you but i got a voice in my head anybody else got that voice if you don't if you're wondering which voice it just said what voice <laughs> that's the voice and it started talking it started going hey man you're not like these guys you're not like these people these people are losers these people are old their lives are over. They should go to church or something. Hell, they must be, they must be 30. <laughs> and then it started talking. It said, man, dude, your problem isn't booze. Come on. Booze isn't. How could you walk into a high school party drinking keg beer and talk to the jocks, the cheerleaders, and play quarters, sing with the band? You can't do that on your own. Booze ain't your problem. Your problem is you got caught. You should do things that are easier to get away with. So I started smoking non-addictive marijuana. Anybody else smoke a lot of marijuana? Anybody? Yeah, a lot. Yeah. 
I had this guy one time, I said that line, and this, this guy gets in the line and comes over and says, hey, dude, I smoked a lot of pot. I go, okay. And he goes, I mean, a lot. I go, how much, man? Come on, bro, come on. And he says, I smoked so much pot, the zigzag man had a tattoo of me on his arm. So that's, that's a lot of pot. <laughs> so I started smoking pot. I started taking these... I started taking these white pills way back when. They were real tiny. They had little X's on them. Remember those? Remember those? Cross tops. Yes. This was Benzedrine. This was pharmaceutical speed. It was real cheap. You could take a few of these and drink a quart of Budweiser. This is quarts were back then. And you would have an exciting day. Just, yeah, just wash your car like four times, you know. Go home and vacuum the house for your mom, you know. Just... And you go home and go to bed, you know, and whatever. It wasn't like the stuff these kids are doing today. Uh, you're out here. I know you are. Tweakers. Come on. Let's see it. Ants. I knew it. I knew it. These guys are sneaking into AA, these tweakers. I, they're, 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 they're really an interesting breed, you know. I, I just trip out on you guys, you know. You just, you're, you're, you're busy. Uh, <laughs> a little nervous. I love walking up to you when you're new and going, hey, did you see that? Just watching. <laughs> Go, go shopping all night night at Walmart, you know, and go home dissect the toaster for bugs, you know. My all-time favorite is masturbate till you're in the burn unit. <laughs> I'm, 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 not, I'm not making fun of you, but I'm getting close. <laughs> I bring that up for a reason, because I, 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 I want to tell you that I am a, I believe in the traditions. I believe in the singleness of purpose, and I am an alcoholic. I'm a drunk. Now, I'll take other stuff, but when I read our book, and I study the literature, and I start to see what it means to be a real alcoholic, I have the phenomenon of craving, I have the obsession of the mind, and I always drink. I always drink, I always drink. I do other things, but I always drink. And I bring that up because I see so many people coming in you that don't know that. They're young. They're your kids, your grandkids, nieces, and nephews, and they're dying. And how dare I run them out because I'm afraid. If I find out when I interview a guy, if he's alcoholic, if he's not, I send him to the appropriate place for him to get help because they're our friends. Wilson says it over and over in the literature. He really, he, he thought the world of the other fellowships. He helped them. He lent them the steps. So I try to, try to bring that to the meeting. But I, I do whatever you put in front of me. I don't ask questions. And here's the other thing when I'm young. When I'm young, the guys at the corner don't ask for my ID. And that makes it real simple. So I'm doing all this combination of goodies and I'm drinking. Uh, at 18 years old, my girlfriend got pregnant and I married my girlfriend at the age of 18. At the age of 19, I bought my first home and my daughter was born into a loving home. And uh, my wife and I have careers and we're hustling and we're working really hard. And, and, uh, and I want to be a good husband and I want to be a, a good employee and I want to build a life and a career and be my, my little girl's hero. And, um, and I have alcoholism. And alcoholism doesn't care. If you got dreams, goals, and ambitions, alcoholism must be treated. And I had no clue. I had no clue that I was treating it by ingesting alcohol and other stuff. Uh, my wife left three years into the marriage. Uh, and when she left, the wheels fell off and there was no reason to slow down. I'm drinking around the clock. I started adding other substances in that keep me off all night long and cost a lot of money. 
um, and it's getting worse by the day, and um, I'm alone. And I start drinking a lot of hard liquor and something. I'm just getting out of control. Um, my boss at work um, came, called me in one day, and they offered me uh, to leave the job or go to treatment uh, for the first time. I was working for Anheuser-Busch back then. Um, and they sent me to a treatment center for 30 days, a spin dry out of Clovis, California. And uh, I went to the treatment center for 30 days. Um, they detoxed me. I got off of everything. I couldn't have caffeine in there. Um, and I hated it in there. I hated the people in there. I hated your God. I hated your steps. I hated everything about all of you. And I could not wait to leave. And I left in 30 days. I walked out of there sober and convinced I would never, ever drink again. Uh, convinced. Fully convinced. If you would have put me on a lie detector and said, will you drink or use again? I would have said no. It would have told you I was telling the truth because I meant it with everything in me. And within four hours, I walked into a liquor store. Within four months, our book talks about progression. Progression means it gets worse, never better. While I sit in the rooms not drinking, my alcoholism is getting worse during my abstinence from it. And those 30 days did something really, really weird to me. Because in 30 days when I picked up again, my thirst was insatiable and I could not get enough. I couldn't stay loaded enough, and within four months, I had lost everything I had ever owned, and I didn't see it coming. I had watched losers share that crap, and I wasn't going to be like that, and here I am, and I've lost the house. I've lost the car. I've spent my daughter's uh, savings bonds that we were saying. I've spent everything. It's everything's gone, and if you're like me, I go where the tough guys in the world go. Mama's couch. <laughs> And I can't get off the couch, and it's just getting, it's, I'm on the couch, I can't get off the couch, I'm unemployable, nobody will hire me, and I start doing those despicable things I said I would really never do. I start crossing the lines in the sand and making it all right. I start taking stuff to the pawn shop out of my parents' home, their jewelry, their tools, uh, pawning it. I'm not a thief. I'm not a thief. No, listen, you don't understand. They took my daughter away. My wife's gone. My job's gone. I've had a lot of bad luck. Some good luck's coming. And when it does, I'll get it all out. And you know what happens. And uh, I get to the point where I'm suicidal. I can't take it anymore. Every day I tell myself I'm not going to do it. And every day by 11 o'clock or 1 o'clock, i got to do something to stop it. i got to stop the madness and the nightmares of the things I'm doing behind my drinking of watching my mom pitifully, like grab her purse because she's got to go write a check for a check she I wrote on her account somewhere in town or my dad going to get his stuff out of Hawk or my dad looking at me and saying, you know, and I'm walking around the house with a gun saying, you know, if you're going to kill yourself, could you please go do it somewhere else and not in our home? Or watching the look in my daughter's eyes when at four years old or three and a half when her mom's bringing over for our weekend together uh, and she drops her off on a Friday and I'm not there. And Saturday, I'm not there. And when grandma and grandpa say, let's go to the movies at the mall. Maybe he'll come later. And she says, no, I, I, he's going to be here any minute and waits for me. And I show up sometimes Sunday around 4 o'clock before her mother comes um, to grab my daughter, borrow five bucks from my mom and the car keys and take her to McDonald's and buy her a Happy Meal to tell her how next week it'll be different, baby. Next week, we're going to go to the zoo. Next week. Next week next week and I'd like to tell you that happened a couple of times but it happened week after week after week 
not because I didn't love my daughter, because I have an illness called alcoholism, a cancer of the soul, a spiritual tapeworm, that if you get in the way of me and the solution, which is the drink, you become something less than human. You become paper mache. And I don't see it coming. And if you live like that long enough, it makes sense to take myself out. In our book, if you're new, if you hear anything at all tonight, listen to this. Follow people who follow our book. Because in our beautiful book, it says this line where it says, men make the supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight. He's talking suicide. And if you're in this room and you've been running and gunning with people, I am sure you know some people that pulled that one. Good, decent, loving people who hurt so bad. I get it. And uh, I um, had this friend of mine. He lived in L.A. He was going to school, and I, he used to call me at night, and he called me one night, and I got off the phone, and I had this great pre-newcomer idea. If you're new and you have a plan, we want to hear it. We bet it's a doozy. But here was the plan. I'll go to L.A. and get away from alcohol and drugs forever. <laughs> so I carried out the plan. I jumped in the car. I drove to L.A., and I moved into L.A. He lived in this place called Brentwood, which is this. It's like La Jolla. It's like the, it's uppity. And it's a new culture shock. I get this job making a lot of money. It looks good. I, I also have to tell you the other reason why I split I was dating this girl, and she was pregnant. And that's the kind of guy that I am. You see, my sponsor said, when I come to see you, I should dress up appropriately and try to look like a vision for you or try to look like what it, what it looks like now and not what it used to look like from the podium. And he tells me that i got to dress here and shave and comb my hair and look all right. But I don't want you to be fooled. I have alcoholism, and that's the kind of guy I am without a solution. That's the kind of stuff I do. And I left her there uh, and hope it would go away and try to forget all about it. That was my plan. And in March of 1988, my mother called me and told me that I had a, a son. And what probably should have been the happiest day of my life, my response to my mother was, why are you doing this to me? Why can't you leave me alone? Because the ice around my heart was so, was so thick. I could, no capacity. And I hung the phone up and act like it never happened. And about four months later, my mother called me and said, I hate to bother you, but your son is very ill and may need blood. Do you think you can do that? And if you're new tonight and you don't like the word God in our meetings, if you don't like power greater than yourself, my friend Carla says something that I really like. She says, look back over your life and look at the coincidences. Look at the things that occurred. I look back on that moment and I see my raggedy butt getting in a car and driving a few hundred miles to go do the right thing beyond me. And I went to go see my son for the first time and do the right thing. And the first time I saw him, I just fell in love with him and his mom. And I stayed there and I knew it. It was time to man up and stop being a punk. And I loaded her in the car and I loaded my son in the car and I moved into Brentwood. The trouble is she's an alcoholic too. And so the nights in our home looked something like this. We were both loaded. We were both fighting. We had our hands on each other. We were punching each other, choking each other out. We, were, we couldn't afford anything to eat. Our kid went hungry half the time. And we found ourselves in front of Ralph's panhandling for Isomel and Similac most of the time. I never want to forget that. I never want to forget the holidays, standing in front of Toys R Us with my kid in a cardboard box asking for change. I don't want to forget that. But that's alcoholism. And um, I got arrested in 1991. Luckily, my kid wasn't in the car. 
And I went, I went away and um, I went to court and uh, the judge offered me a diversion program instead of prison. He told me I could go to prison. I was terrified. I don't gel well. Um, I'm not a big guy. Look at me. I'm like an hors d'oeuvre in the joint. And I'm, I don't go. And if you, if you swing that way, cool. I don't. And I was scared. And, uh, and uh, you know, um, I took the diversion program, man. It, it, the problem with diversion was they had a test there I have trouble passing calling a UA. I can't pass a UA. See, I've been to tons and tons of meetings by this time, and I heard this line. If you're new, you're going to go to meetings, and you're going to have people tell you, just don't drink no matter what. It's well-intentioned, but I tell you something. You tell a guy like me, just don't drink no matter what, it's like telling somebody with projectile diarrhea, wear white and don't go. <laughs> I, I drink no matter what. If you read our literature, Wilson says it over and over. This is the baffling feature of alcoholism as we know it. The utter inability to leave it alone. No matter how great the necessity or the wish, once more the alcoholic is unable at certain times to bring into his consciousness with sufficient force the suffering and humiliation of a week or a month ago. I'm without defense against the first drink. Totally without defense and don't even know it. I tried not drinking no matter what, and I ended up drinking, and I ended up in a mental hospital 51-50 one more time, and I didn't want to be there. Uh, on the third night, they called me in and said I had to go to this chemical dependency meeting. I went in there reluctantly, and I walked in the room, and it was a dude carrying the format of AA, and I don't want to be there. I hate AA. I don't want to hear about your God. You're always so happy and shiny and grateful for everything. and Everything's a miracle. Miracle. The coffee's a miracle. You know, and I already know your story, your crap. Hey, stories to say, you're a wino, you peed on yourself, blah, 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 nobody loves you. You put the plug in the jug and walk through that door, and now you're running Microsoft with Bill Gates. You know, I knew the story, but that, that wasn't the story. The, the guy sat down in the chair, and he said he had alcoholism. He said he had an illness that left him different, separate, lonely, and apart his entire life. He said he had a hole in his soul that he couldn't fill with anything you could touch or see. It was an inside job. He talked about the way that he drank and the stuff he took. He talked about being a loser, about being a coward. He talked about treating his family bad, and he said he was the worst kind of father there was. And I thought, oh, my God. I have never heard a human being describe me that way. He was talking about him, and I knew it was me. And he said he was sober five years in Alcoholics Anonymous, and he was going to college. I didn't care. But here's where he got me. I, I don't care about that crap, you know. I, but here's what he said. He said, you know, last week I lost my little girl over due to drinking. And last week I got to take her to this carnival and put her on a merry-go-round. I bought her some cotton candy and she held my hand and I was her hero. And when he said that, done. I lost it. And something in my head clicked. And that voice said, maybe you're just, maybe, just, maybe, just, maybe if you do whatever this dude's doing, maybe you could get sober. I never saw that guy again. He was a man of service. He was an H&I member. He was a giver. And I heard him, and I started going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous like my life depended on it, not knowing that it did. And I'll tell you how I went to meetings. I went to meetings, and I bought your book. I did not read it. I did not do any service work. I did not take any steps. I came to lots of meetings and said all the wines with you guys and everything, and I managed to not drink and use for a while. I'm making money again. I'm happy. Things are going good. I'm a little weird around the edges. But I'm going along in my life, and, uh, you know, I'm enjoying the fruits and benefits of step number none. <laughs> and a happy land called sobriety. 
getting crazier and crazier and sicker. See, the problem with me is this. I suffer from alcoholism, and the longer I get away from the bag and the bottle, the sicker I get, and I don't even know it. You're talking about how great you're doing. I don't know why I'm not. And I start to get, like, mental illness in the media. I start to get dry polar. I really do. And I... um, at six months and seven days, I pick up a drink. I had six months and seven days, and I picked up a drink because that's what I do. And I tried. That's a drink I could not put down for another two years. And I did not stop coming to meetings. I'd come in here and sit in the back of the room and walk in crying and walk in rummy. And I kept coming to your meetings. And people were some people were really, really mean. But there are people here that know our traditions. There were some old timers that knew our signals of purpose, and they knew we don't shoot our wounded here. And. Um, on June the 14th of 1993, I begged to God that I didn't believe in for help on that morning. And um, I fell to my knees and I looked at my wallet and there was a card of a Navy corpsman named Art Miller, an old Jewish guy. He was a sweetheart of a man. He was a kind, kind man. And I called him up and asked him for help. I said, Art, I'm dying. He said, no shit. I said, I don't want to die like this. He said, are you willing to go to any lengths to stay sober? They used to ask that. And I said, yeah. And he said, there's a detox over. I said, well, except for that. And I heard a dial tone. I said, where's all that love and service that I heard about? And I had nothing left. In our literature, you know, it says come to believe, newcomer. There's a line there before that where it says, I have to come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of my life before I can come to believe anything. And there was nothing left. And I called him back and he picked me up and he told me the truth. He told me I was dying of alcoholism. He told me when I finally did die, the people in my life I respect would be relieved that I was gone. And I didn't fight with them. He told me, you have a bad attitude, and you're like the part of chapter five. You're one of those people who's not going to get it. Your, your chances are less than average, my friend. And I thought, my God, he said, the good news is, if you do twice as much, you can catch up. And he got me busy in Alcoholics Anonymous. He's taught me how to go to meetings, show up early and stay late like I did today. (laughs) (laughs) He taught me to be of service. He got me involved in hospital institutions really early. I've been carrying meetings into jails and prisons, uh, facilities for at least like three times a month since I've been sober over 22 years. I go up to California Men's Colony, San Luis Obispo. It's a long drive, but those guys up there love to be in a meeting of AA, and they have a great meeting there. I'm in and out of county jail all the time, not because they're alcoholic, because I am. I have alcoholism, not alcoholism. I watch what happens to people who get alcoholism, who start to get their life back, and the fruit and the, the gifts of sobriety are the thing that hang them. I'm too busy. We have a kid now. I'm going to school. I, I know those excuses because I pulled them and watched myself get crazier and crazier. But I'm an active member of AA. At five and a half years sobriety, I became crazy, nutty. I had done those steps with my first sponsor using the 12 and 12 because that's what he had. And it helped me a lot. And at five and a half years, I'm at a job where I'm stealing large sums of money from people. I don't like San Diego because I spent time in your federal courthouse. I'm not a happy camper. And uh, hey, Sober. Sober. And uh, I, anyway, at five and a half years sobriety, I've justified things I'm doing that aren't okay. And I, and I, here's the problem. Problem is I get to a place where I can't stand myself anymore. And I know that I can't drink because I'm of service. And I see what happens to people who drink. And I know I can't drink, but the solution now becomes suicide. 
And I no longer ask God for to be able to help the new guy who's suffering. I'm asking him for the courage to take the 9mm out of the cabinet and call it a day because this ain't working anymore. And I heard a guy from a podium talking from Las Vegas, and uh, the guy rang my bell. He talked about the steps, and I watched him live this. I followed the guy around and watched this guy live like I'd never seen anybody else. And he showed me, it took me through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, where we got on our knees and read a, did a third step on our knees. Today I got to do a third step with a guy, and I just, I love doing that. And then he gave me some paperwork and said, start writing, and I wrote an inventory. And I read that inventory, him and I was honest. Well, who am I resentful at? What's, it, what's the cause? What's it affect? Can I see how the people who wronged me were perhaps spiritually sick? Can I have any kind of forgiveness? Can I stop the burning? Where was I selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? And what are the defects of character in me that if God would remove, the resentment would vanish? And the fear and the sexual misconduct. And I remember reading that to him. And after I finished... My relationship with my father, with my ex-wives, started to change. I could see. I, I hated my ex-wife. I thought she ruined my life. I, after doing the inventory, I thought, how could she have put up with me so long? <laughs> that poor thing. That's a shift. That's a shift. And I started praying for those defects. I was in that business, and I wouldn't leave. And, and I kept praying and praying and asking God, if you're new here, in step six, the prayer in step six is asked to be willing, which means I want to want to. And if I want to want to stop drinking, I want to want to stop drinking. I want to stop acting out sexually. If I want to stop acting out, I, I want to want to. Let me ask for it. And then let me try to act like a guy who's that way. But let me keep asking God to do the work. And I kept asking and asking. What happened was I couldn't close deals anymore. And I was good at it. And I started going in debt. I started borrowing money from the boss. I can't see that it's happening. But one day I'm at my desk and these guys come running in with windbreakers on and FBI on the coat. And I'll tell you something, that defect got removed that day. It got removed quick. And it was a big mess and a lot of, you know, it just went on and on. Then I had to make amends. And I don't know, the first time I did the steps, I tried to avoid a lot of the amends. I did the ones that were going to hurt me and the, the ones that were going to cause me any kind of, I don't want to spend, I don't want to pay the money back. I just, I really, my friend Angie says it best. I was trying to make chicken salad with chicken shit. Yeah. And, uh, uh. And my sponsor sat me down and he said, yeah, I know guys like you. Fast talker, you always make things happen. And you're, yeah, I, I, I'll tell you something. I sponsored this other guy. He told me his name. He said, he's, he's not that bright. He's working as a plumber's assistant. He makes minimum wage. And he gives his wife half his check. He lives in a sober living. He doesn't have very much. He's going to keep doing that in a couple of years. He'll be a journeyman plumber. Then he'll get his own business. Then he'll be living up on the hill with a bunch of guys working for him and he'll have a life. And you'll be doing the same crap you've always been doing. Because with the universe is a great accountant. And whatever I owe, I owe. And I'll always owe. Whatever I put back will come back to me. And I went, he's telling me the truth. And I know it. And I became willing to make the amends. And thank God I did. Because my family came back into my life. My kids came back into my life. More, not just superficially, but actually part of my life. Um, I got to be there a couple of years ago when my mother passed away. My dad was just, uh, my dad was a, a very stoic guy. He was a military guy, no emotion. And I watched him fall apart. I watched him fall apart and be able to hold him and walk him through it. Because you taught me that. See, we don't just stop drinking here. We start building lives again here. We take beaten up, broken people. We take busted up losers and boosters and hustlers and dealers and prostitutes and Junkies, and we took and put them on their feet, and I'm go out and walk in society and become mothers and fathers. 
and pay their taxes and citizens and employers and carry this message, this message of recovery, that this works. That I take these steps and something happens to me and the experience I have is something that I call God. If you don't like the word God, it's because you're, I was prejudiced with that word for a long time. But what they're really saying is the experience that I'm going to have as a result of working those steps, that things will shift and I will start to see things differently, that I will realize that I have a ringside seat here to the greatest show on earth. That I get to watch people recover and change. I get to watch broken down losers who their families are embarrassed of turn around and start helping other people. I start hearing them care more about the guys they're working with than their own lives for moments at a time. I start seeing this shift where I see them love their, their brother like themselves. I start to see that happen in Alcoholics Anonymous through the steps and through this power that we talk about in AA. And it's real. You're in the middle of it. You're touching it right now. You're here in a room full of people. If they're like me, there's no chance. There's no shot. And because of a God and because of what you've taught me and given me, you've allowed me, you've taught me something that a guy in Colorado used to say. I love what he used to say. He used to say, my contribution to life. I never knew what it was. I never, why am I here? What's the meaning of what? He said, my contribution to life is to show another man his contribution to life. Thank you for letting me share.